HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Straight Note Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwood, Brooklyn, where brunch is being served. Um, Straight Note Chaser is proud to welcome today to today's program Tom Muller, who is the author of a new book on olive oil. Olive oil is uh, a surprisingly scandal-ridden um, subject, and Tom, who is a freelance writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker and other places, is going to tell us all about his book, Extra Virginia. The Sublime and Scandalous World of Olive Oil. Welcome, Tom. Thanks so much for making time for us, because I know you're out at the Fancy Food Show in San Francisco, right? That's right, Katie. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, no, it's a great pleasure. I've really enjoyed the book. Um, now, you wrote about this um, originally in The New Yorker in 2007. I saw, I read that story, which is why uh, when your book came out, I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an eye-opener for a lot of people. It was certainly an eye-opener for me, too. I had no idea what I was getting into, and it turned out to be quite a, a rich uh, subjects in a lot of different directions. Yeah, it obviously took you a while to get all of the nuances together because, uh, you know, here it is 2011 or 2012. I guess you published last year, though, right? Right at the end of the year? Yeah, at the very end of the year. So yeah. in effect, it's been out for a month now. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And it's published by Norton, in case people are wondering, um, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful publisher. They get great distribution. It's always good to have a good uh, <laughs> back back end on your, on your book project. <laughs> um, so uh, what, you know, like what got you interested in this topic in the first place? Like when, when you first wrote the article for the New Yorker, why did you um, why did you decide to do it? Well, it was really kind of a, a during a conversation with my editor um, discussing what would be the next project, and olive oil came up as one of the potential things. I'd been living in Italy at the time for the better part of ten years. Mm-hmm. I, I still live there, actually, and um, you know I had some good olive oils, and it seemed like a tasty, interesting subject. And I, I decided that well, we decided together that would be the one. And uh, little did I know that I would soon be discussing with undercover military police and shady bars uh, the ins and outs of international olive oil fraud, um, not to mention spending lots more time with the fabulous producers and and, uh, true blue souls who are making the good stuff. Um, I I tend to be pegged because the fraud is kind of sexy and interesting and surprising as the person who really talks about olive oil fraud, but 
I'd like it to be the kind of dark shadow behind the, the luminous people who make the good stuff. Well, um, yeah, I'd like to get to that too. But right now, I'm really interested in the fraud. Why don't you talk I about? You would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everybody is curious. I mean, you know, so many people are. You know, we've all sort of been um, indoctrinated by Rachel Ray at the very least to you know splash on the evu. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think people realize how many different options there are and how many different producers, many different countries. But especially, people don't know what kinds of frauds are being perpetrated on them. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about what? you discovered when you started digging into this? Sure. Yeah. I, um, I, I mean, there are a range of different frauds. It's, fraud goes back into to, to Babylonian times with olive oil. It's quite amazing to see how long this... this and essentially, it's explained by the fact that real uh, extra virgin olive oil, real olive oil, is, is a fresh-squeezed fruit juice. It's quite expensive to make. You have to take very good care of the trees. You have to have good fruit to begin with. Um, and and you have to process it quickly, take good care of the oil. All of this costs a lot of money. Uh, mm-hmm. Harvesting costs alone can be staggering. Um, and in places where I have been, in places where, the place where I live now in in Italy, I mean, to make a liter of olive oil can cost you fifteen, sixteen euros uh, just to make the just to make the stuff. Uh, and there are places where it's up to twenty euros. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, unfortunately, rather easy to dilute with other substances that are much cheaper to make. Uh, we were talking soybean oil, sunflower seed oil, but also very, very low-grade olive oil that's been dumbed down in a refining process. So it's essentially buy low and sell high. The extra virgin name has a lot of cachet, or has had, and so unfortunately this whole process has also dumbed down the name of extra virgin, which needs to be bolstered and brought back to health. Yeah, it has to be shown as as a branding tool that's actually worth what it's what you're paying for it. Well, that exactly. makes me wonder. I mean, I'm always I buy I cook a lot and I buy a lot of olive oil, um, and I'm you know I, I I go to Fairway Market and I know Steve Jenkins is really careful about sourcing his olive oil and he's able to sell it at unbelievably low costs and he gets really good oils. So how how does that work? I mean, how can he find such great stuff? Um, is it because he buys in bulk and that makes it worthwhile for the producer, or how does that work? Do you think? Certainly, yeah. Certainly. Are you familiar I don't know with Fairway, Steve by the way? His, pro- his 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 approach directly, and and in all of all, you really need to know the individual person. But I, it sounds to me like someone I know a number of people who who are able to get really first grade uh, first rate olive oil um, at a low price um, because they travel the world. They really go and kick mm-hmm. the tires everywhere they go. They don't trust anyone until they really get to know them. Um, it's an unfortunate state of affairs that you can't believe what's on the label and you can't trust the average person but unfortunately olive oil industry by and large has a level of ethical behavior that's well below used cars and uh, you really can't trust people until you so you till you go there and and check out their mill and and see what they're doing once you do that there are places all around the world from um, the mediterranean countries obviously spain and and italy being the, the foremost but also tunisia but also australia parts of california yeah, chile um, i mean south yeah, americans are yeah, producing it, oils new now? zealand um south africa there are places that make fabulous oil and in many cases really pretty re- quite low price i mean the the function is how much labor really the labor costs are the determining factor and if you can mechanize it or if it's on the plane rather than in the mountains um the the, the, the more you can mass produce the lower the prices are going to be 
I see. What does it take to harvest the olives uh, themselves? Do people hand pick them? I know that you, um, in the book, you describe, you know, some people, and even in Roman times, they frowned upon the the um, the idea of, of beating the tree with a stick to make the olives fall to the ground. But I, I'm sure some people still do that. How, do they, how does it work? Absolutely, including my neighbors. Uh, uh, well, you know, it really depends on terrain and on tradition. Um, where I live in Liguria, there are these very narrow terraces, a very steep hillsides with narrow terraces, and the trees are growing on these terraces, and you basically get up with ladders. There's no way you could drive a tractor in there. Right. Um, you can get up with ladders and knock them down or, or strip them off with your hand. Um, and, and the less damage you do to the fruit, the better. If they're bruised, it, again, it's fresh fruit. Um, so if you bruise the fruit and it sits around for any length of time, the oil is going to suffer. And the next level of mechanization is hydraulic shakers or, or wands that kind of, like uh, mechanical hands, that pull the fruit off the trees. And that helps you. You can get more per hour um, off the trees. Then there are big uh, tractor-shaped mechanical shakers, which actually clamp the big branches or the trunk of the tree itself and shake them like mad, wow. and they all just rain down. It's quite a show. Um, and then the most mechanized of all, that last one has to be done on, on a l- l- fairly flat ground because you have these great big tractors. Um, the most mechan- mechanized one of all is what they call medium super high density, where you actually have an over-the-row harvester like they use in wine uh, that runs right over a, a, a line of alder trees that's been trained almost like a row crop. It looks like, uh, yeah, it looks like a, uh-huh. um, tomatoes or something. And they've been, and the tractor goes right over the top and engulfs each tree in this sort of tunnel and, and, and pulls off all of the, or knocks off all of the olives and, and rolls right down. It's quite, it's quite impressive. And you can make some very, very good oil that way too. And it's obviously the labor costs are lower. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating, Tom. Thank you. So now, <clears throat> Olive oil being such a major crop for uh, countries like Spain and Italy, obviously there's a lot of politics inherent in um, both the you know export import of them and and um, basically in sort of I don't know I'm sure there are politics about how it's managed in terms of its branding and labeling and so forth. Can you talk about how those politics inhibit or conversely contribute to fraud? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in the Mediterranean and and in the countries you've named um, around the Mediterranean, but Spain in particular, and this at this time because Spain isn't by by a factor of three the biggest producer in the world. Olive oil uh, and olives are are a political, social, and economic entity. I mean, we we as Americans really don't think of it as a major crop. It's not a major crop in America, but it, but in Spain, it's a huge source of 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 jobs and of social stability. And so it's very difficult. The people who push for quality oil in Spain have have a, jo- a tough job because, you know, the average person, by far the, the, the bulk of Spanish oil, really isn't very good, and a lot of it isn't extra virgin at all. But there's huge market pressures, um, huge political, social pressures, to, to include that low-grade oil in the most brand-worthy, the most, the most economically attractive oil grade for the market. So there's a lot of pressure to dumb down the extra virgin grade to include this stuff. And um, I do sympathize with, you know, with people who are caught in that position, but it also is doing, long-term, it's doing damage to the growers themselves because extra virgin olive oil is losing value. I mean, you can get a, a, a kilo, which is basically a liter of extra virgin olive oil in the bulk market in Spain for something like a euro 80, which is a complete joke. I mean, it's an open joke. Um, that cannot possibly be extra virgin olive oil. And yet, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what they're calling it. So right. short term, they include a lot of these growers, but in the long term, they're driving them out of business. I mean, those, there's an enormous um, social and economic unease among olive growers in Spain now. 
I can imagine. And given the nature of the business, how likely is it that that culture, you know, in the trade in trade is going to change? I mean, what can they do to make that, you know, to make that branding be more effective? I actually think that the, the, the change is going to come, the incentive is going to come from the, the consumer end. And I think that America, North America, um, and the U.S. in particular, is going to be a major driver in that because really America is beginning to wake up to great oil. Uh, people are more and more um, understanding that oil is a bit like wine and that the different cultivars of olives, there are 700 plus different types of olives, produce distinctive and, and radically different oils, just as the different varietals of wine produce different wines. And people are really beginning to, to, to explore that whole new universe. As they do, they're willing to pay more, just as, you know, um, coffee since the Starbucks revolution or wine itself or sea salt or artisanal cheeses. People are beginning to get more educated and, they're, and discerning. They're beginning to spend more. And that's going to have a knock-on effect on quality in all of the producer countries around the Mediterranean, but also in Australia, Chile. Um, there are lots and lots of places where the farmers are simply saying, look, I will make better oil, but right now no one's paying me the premium. As soon as that premium is paid, many people around the world, um, and the Spanish first and foremost, will be able to bump up their quality very quickly. How interesting. Tom, we're going to take a 30-second break and play a sponsor drop, and then stay on the line, and we'll be right back to talk about what makes olive oil really good. Great. Thanks, Tom. The following program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery. Cane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.cane5.com. We're back. This is Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting on the HeritageRadioNetwork.com. My guest today is Tom Muller, the author of Extra Virginity, The Sublime and Scandalous World of Olive Oil. He's talking to us via phone from the Fancy Food Show in San Francisco. Thanks so much again, Tom, for taking this time out for uh, for our little chit-chat here. Um, so let's talk, let's keep talking about olive oil. What makes an olive oil good? Is it the, is it the way it's harvested, as you said earlier, or is it different types of olives? Do they blend different types of olives to get specific types of, you know, specific flavors, the way that you do grapes in wine? Very definitely, yeah. I mean, it, it, you start off with um, the notion that there are 700-plus different types of olives, um, which inherently have very, very different flavor profiles and very different chemical characteristics. Then you add in factors like how early you pick those olives, um, and early harvest tends to be greener, more robust, bitter, and pungent. Uh, later harvest tends to be more mild, mellow, buttery. Um, how much um, water you give the trees, how, how you blend them, uh, how you um, mill them. There are all kinds of micro decisions being made by the millers, and, and, they, and the decisions made in the mill can make a huge difference in the quality and the characteristics of the oil. Um, to answer your question about types, yeah, there are certain types of olives that are associated with certain regions. Um, and, you know, the people talk about the Tuscan varietals, which can be in Tuscany, but also in, in Australia or in California. Um, Lecino, Moreolo, Frantoio, Pendolino are the sort of four that they tend to typically blend as they would blend a Chianti uh, to make a Tuscan varietal. But it really is something that is... Uh, it's beginning to be understood, but the book hasn't yet been written on all the different variations. Mm -hmm. And the question of terroir, of exactly how important it is 
to know where a, a given oil comes from is still very much an open question. And I think right now, generally speaking, it's more important how fresh the olives are, how qu- quickly they're taken from the tree to the mill, um, and, and what point in their maturity cycle they were picked. And that brings me to the next question, which is, um, you know, when you're talking about the mill, and I know in the book it describes milling as um, actually more of a centrifugal force experience as opposed to pressing it or cold pressed. And so, you know, we're all familiar with those words on olive oil labels like cold pressed or extra virgin. What do those words actually mean? And do they do they really describe what's happened? Or are those just words that are given to us, you know, because the American market recognizes them and thinks it means they're that the oil is going to be good? The latter. Um, they're completely <laughs> anachronistic. Uh, first, cold press, to, frankly, uh, is three lies in one. Uh, first, in this day and age anyway, it's um, first, uh, the only kind of oil that can be extra virgin is first. You can't have second pressed extra virgin. It's the, it's the stuff that comes off, comes out of the paste first. And cold, it can't be, you can't get oil out of cold olives. It has to be 26, 24, 26 degrees Celsius, you know, fairly warm just to get the oil out at all. And pressed um, is an, another anachronistic. In the vast majority of cases, people are using big um, stainless steel centrifuges to spin the oil out of the paste rather than squashing it out with, uh, with hydraulic presses and mats. So that's an indication of the, of the level of misinformation in, uh, in, in olive oil, and that's fairly benign. But when you get on to things like extra light, which, um, despite what you might think, has absolutely the same number of calories as as, nor- as normal or real olive oil. It's just been dumbed down by, by a refining process or pure, which is the same thing. Pure means refined. It doesn't mean extra virgin, but so many people use that word and think, wow, that's the purest there is. It must be the best. Dead wrong. <laughs> you really burst in my <laughs> bubble funny, here, but man. also pretty depressing. <laughs> you're totally, you're just harshing my mellow big time with this. <laughs> I do this all the time, and I, yeah. <laughs> it's, hard, hard, it's hard to be the bearer of bad tidings. But, yeah. you know, sooner or later, this has to be cleaned up, and people have to start writing what's, on, what's in the bottle on the label. And when that happens, uh, people will all of a sudden start to appreciate olive oil as they are appreciating coffee and microbrewery beer and wine sure. and everything Chocolate else. But until anything, that yeah. clarity happens, we're not going to get it. Absolutely. So what, in your opinion, what kinds of olives make the most user-friendly oils, you know, that you can just like sort of use with abandon uh, in cooking that uh, respond reasonably well to heat without losing all their flavor? And how will consumers identify those from looking at a bottle? Is there a way to see where, is it where it comes from or is it the type of olives? Would they be identified on the label? What's, what's that story? Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, the first question, what is a user-friendly oil, I think is a very, very important question for people uh, who make oil to, uh, to identify. And two of my f- favorites are Arbequina and Arbosana, which tend to be not terribly overpoweringly bitter and pungent. Um, and and they are nice mellow oils that you can use in a, in a wide range of things, um, and that that's, that depends also on how they're made. But those those are good ones to look for. We're looking for uh, the mention of a specific type of of olive is a very good sign. Um, it's not a guarantee, but it's a good sign that the that the producer is serious about it. Looking for a harvest date rather than a best buy date because the harvest date means okay, when do those olives come off the tree? And the clock starts ticking on their freshness as soon as they come off the tree. Whereas a best buy date is com- is computed by when the oil went into the bottle. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it could be sitting out in a tank for two or three years before it actually goes in the bottle. So best buy date, by and large, is meaningless. Um, 
not all great oils have a harvest date, but it's something that, that more and more people are doing. Then a specific point of, of production. It doesn't have to be in, a, in any particular place, but it has to tell you where on the globe this stuff was made, not a catch-all phrase like, uh, made from olives from six of the following countries, and then they just list off you know, places around the Mediterranean. That's not helpful. And also a producer, a specific producer, who made this oil? Because the more accountability and the more direct line you have to the place and the person where the oil is coming from, the better. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, it's but it is it does mean that you really have to read your labels very carefully. And I and I have to say that, you know, the average consumer, myself included, although I buy oils, um, you know, often from Steve, sometimes I'll buy oil that I think is going to be great. And it's just, well, you know, it's been obviously dumbed down, as you said, it's been uh, mixed with other oils, it doesn't have, I, I want you to just take a second and describe some of the qualities that people should be thinking about and looking for when they try good olive oils, because I know you at the beginning of the book, there's this hilarious chapter about um, strapigio. Is that how you say? Oh, stripaggio. Yeah, the, the gar- gargling tasting yeah, technique. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When you do that, <laughs> you got it. That's right. That's very good. <laughs> I loved that. That really cracked me up. That whole chapter was a riot. But um, and having the special glass. Now nobody's going to have the special glass and do that at Fairway Market where you can try oils. But um, but what you know, you're looking for peppery, or you're looking for bitter, or you're looking for mellow. Like I guess it's individual, but also it's dependent on what you're planning on doing with it. So like some oils, I guess you would use for just a condiment that you wouldn't heat, for instance. Right. You well, you can, you can cook with any extra virgin olive oil right up to high heat. They have a very high smoke point. So as far as whether it's healthy and good to use extra virgin, any extra virgin olive oil in high heat cooking, absolutely yes. Now, whether, as you say, you want to take a great big gnarly Tuscan or Coronaki oil and put it on your poached fish, well, no. I mean, you just just knock the heck out of it. It wouldn't right. taste like fish anymore. It tastes like a, you know, swimming olive, and that's and that's not what you're after. But so you do have to have a lot of sensitivity to, or a certain amount of, just like wine. I mean, you wouldn't take a 30-year Bordeaux and and pour it on your soul. I mean, you you know that, that uh, it would not only be expensive and it would be stupid. Um, so again, thinking of the wine model, I think is useful in that regard. Uh, what you said about choosing oils, the the labels are you can have some clues, but you can't count on them. Choosing the place where you get those oils is really, in a sense, a better model right now to think of. I'm, I've started a website, which is unfortunately just in its infancy, but it's going to grow. And right now I have up a, an initial very skeletal list of places to go and get good oil and some brands to look for. And I hope to develop that. But as you say, go to a place where you can taste it first. That's a key thing. Ideally, they'll have a staff that is educated and can tell you, tell you more about it. Um, I can and, see a whole new business, you know, olive oil bars. Yeah, well, you know, that's happening right now. There are upwards of 350 places in America, in, in, in places that surprise me completely. Uh, Wauwatosa and Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and Shady Rest, Pennsylvania, places, Bee Cave, Texas, places that you don't expect to see, um, you know, a, a highly developed foodie culture, and yet there are these specialty olive oil stores you taste before you buy that really have the good stuff. So something's happening in America, um, and, and I it's an interesting phenomenon to follow. The key thing is to ensure that the supply of good stuff uh, continues to grow um, and and doesn't get pinched off by the kinds of unfair competition that that we're seeing now, where anything 
under the sun is labeled as extra virgin and sold very, very low and undercutting the good guys. Right. Absolutely. Um, now, one of the things that you described, which I thought was really, really interesting um, and which you know goes back certainly to ancient times, and I'm sorry we haven't been able to cover some of the more interesting uh, historical elements of olive oil or aspects of olive oil, but um, you do describe, there's a whole chapter on the chemistry, and it's a very healthy product, which has many, many um, qualities, anti-inflammatory qualities, and so on. Can you describe some of the benefits of olive oil and why people should be, you know, drinking literally gallons of it? I mean, you were, yeah. one of the things that fascinated me was people, families who drink a little glass of olive oil every morning, for instance, you know, for the yeah, health Yeah, it's somewhere between a, 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 a specially food and a, and a medicine, and it's a nutraceutical. It's incredible uh, in many parts of the, of the southern Mediterranean to see how it's used. Yeah, uh, the science is just beginning to catch up with what the Mediterranean diet has told us for thousands of years, um, that it's, you know, the, the reason that people around the Mediterranean have a low incidence of heart disease, of strokes, of certain types of cancer, of even degenerative disorders like uh, Alzheimer's is in large part, well, because of a broad-based Mediterranean diet, but olive oil is really one of the active ingredients of that. And scientists from Monell uh, Laboratories and, and um, uh, Harvard School of Public Health and uh, University of Chicago Medical School and important research institutes in Spain and elsewhere are really beginning to dig into the individual components of olive oil and find that, sure enough, there are strong antioxidants that, that fight off free radicals, um, strong anti-inflammatories, and, and hydrocarbons and, and vitamins that are very beneficial. The fatty acid profile, monounsaturated fatty acid profile of olive oil is very good. And ultimately, what you, when you mentioned earlier, uh, bitterness and pungency, which some Americans don't instinctively like, but those bitter, that bitterness and pungency quite often um, is a direct indicator of the um, amount of healthful antioxidants and anti-inflammatories in an oil. So when you, you get that bitterness and that pungency and your eyes begin to water a little bit, you think, I'm getting healthy is, is the right message to have. Excellent. That's very good to know. So when people taste their olive oil, say at Fairway Market, where Steve has many, many different varieties and many different types of of olives and different regions, etc. You know, you could really go to town over there. I mean, Steve is one of the only places in New York that I know of where you can really taste a lot of different um, types of oils to make a decision. Now, we should be taking a sponsor drop, but we're not going to because we're almost out of time, unfortunately. And I want you to talk about, um, I know that you're going to be testifying in front of Congress about olive oil and the olive oil trade. What's that all about? Well, I hope to make it to Congress someday, but at this point, it's the actual the state Senate in, in California ah. on the 26th, because um, California has by far the biggest um, olive oil production area, and um, people are beginning to ask questions about, you know, <laughs> enforcement, uh, why is this... Um, this unlevel playing field uh, toler- t- being tolerated until now, and why aren't consumers across America being protected? And so that is, uh, it's a hearing that's specifically uh, going to be addressing some of these questions and looking at what the next steps are. And so I hope that something really concrete and sharp-edged comes out of that. Well, would you say that, um, for instance, I mean, what they're concerned about is the, is the, um, the unfair uh, low prices that, uh, say, Italian and Spanish um, growers are able to sell at, as opposed to what American olive oil producers are able to do? 
Is that Certainly, what it's, that's part of mm-hmm. it. I mean, a heavily subsidized industry around the Mediterranean, the EU in particular, has unfair advantages. Another um, unfair advantage, though, is people right here and right in California and, and elsewhere in America who are com- mixing up completely adulterated product for selling it, particularly in the food service industry. Right. I mean, we're talking about soybean and sunflower seed oil that's colored and flavored and sold as extra virgin. That completely undercuts honest producers and completely rips off consumers. Oh, yeah, that's terrible. Um, and do you, um, so who do you think in America is making great olive oil so people can support their own American, uh, you know, producers and also oh, get educated about it? There's a wide range of great oils um, coming out of California, which mm-hmm. is, as I say, by far the biggest producers now. But there are people in Georgia who are coming online who are making a fine oil. There are people in uh, Texas who are starting to make good oil, even a tiny producer in, in um, Oregon. Um, you know, the Californians have a big lead. The Spanish missionaries brought Mission Olives um, back 350 years ago. So um, they've, they've been doing it a long time. But uh, I think, you know, more and more American producers from different states are going to be, are going to be getting into this. And that's going to be good also for uh, to have a certain amount of political weight to push through some honest, uh, some, some tighter laws and some serious enforcement. Absolutely. And give the Europeans a little bit of a run for their money. They're going to have to step up with better product, which is kind yeah, of exciting. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of because exciting. the Europeans, in fact, in their internal markets, I mean, the Italians, for instance, are extremely... Um, it's some, some very high-quality product, um, but the stuff that they exported is, is on average. I mean, it's a magnificent thing that's coming out of Italy, out of Spain, out of Greece, and so on. Sure. So I don't want to uh, seem like I'm, I'm talking down a, a, about Europe in general, but the average by volume is pretty low. Yeah. Well, one of the great things about being at the Fancy Food Show, as I'm sure you have already just, and I'm sure that's why you're there, is that for the average consumer who wants to pay 20 bucks or 25 bucks to go into the show, you can literally taste hundreds and hundreds of beautiful olive oils from all over the world there. It's really, it's kind of a fun and special little way to work your way around the show. Um, I've done that myself. Um, Tom, unfortunately, we're going to be out of time in just a second. I want people to know where you have a website and, you know, how else they can learn more about what you're doing and what's going on in the olive oil trade. So, can you um, give us a little snapshot of, of, you know, future readings if you're going to be in New York or where you're going to be since our show is kind of, you know, online and therefore international? Terrific. Yeah, no, I, I have a, 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 a website that's in its infancy, extravirginity.com, which is the name of the book, um, which I'm wanting to build. Right now there are some resources on, on where to find good oils and how to choose good oils, but I wanted to build it, want to build it into a place of discussion um, where people can come for questions, uh, come post their questions and get some answers, and also uh, a way of outing the bad guys. I'll have a wall of shame and a wall of fame for the good guys. You know, really try <laughs> to put pressure um, where pressure will be noticed um, on public officials to say, you know, you can't ignore this anymore and put pressure on the industry to, to clean itself up because it's in the interest long term of pretty much anybody in the olive oil industry to protect and, and enhance the extra virgin name because they're just destroying value otherwise. Um, Absolutely. Th- there should be, people should be paying just as they do with microbrewery beer and good coffee and so on. They should be paying a premium for good stuff. And right now, this is just very difficult to have to to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Tom, I'm going to wrap this up. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. I hope the next time you come through New York, you'll stop in and you know visit us and we can talk more about olive oil or whatever your next project is going to be. That would um, be great, Katie. Thank you. Really, it would be a real pleasure to meet you. I loved the book. It was great. I really recommend it. Everybody, Extra Virginity. Tom Muller is the author. Thanks so much. Um, thanks to Jack. And next week, people, we will have a very special treat, which is Chuck Jolly, who is a very powerful... Um, public relations expert for the 
commercial meat industry. We're going to be talking about pink slime in your burgers and ammonium hydroxide in treating ground beef. It's going to be a really fun show, I guarantee it. So come back next week, same time, 1 o'clock, for Street No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.